Good morning, happy Friday. Today's podcast is on neonatal hypoglycemia. But again, with a lot of these podcasts, um, the principles do apply to adult medicine. I can help you approach exam questions and patients where the question is, why might this person's blood sugar be low? So if we talk firstly about neonatal hypoglycemia. So hypoglycemia is very common and of all the metabolic disturbances happening in the neonatal period, this is the most common. So really, if we understand the relevant physiology about how do we maintain a normal blood glucose level and the implications that extremely low blood glucose concentrations in neonates at that time can lead to things like apnea, irritability, seizures and brain damage, and that they do correlate with long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. So therefore very important to think about why newborns might have low blood sugar levels. And we'll talk about a few medical conditions, some of them rare and wonderful, but may get you a few extra marks in exams through knowing them and why they are associated with low blood glucose levels. So what happens in healthy infants? Well, a drop in blood glucose levels is normal. Okay. And it's part of this normal physiological transition to extra uterine life. So it's a normal transition. And there will be a podcast on the transition to extra uterine life um, coming up very shortly. So if we abruptly clamp the umbilical cord, there is now not a connection to the placenta. But what has this newborn baby relied on in utero for its supply of glucose and other essential metabolites. It's relied on the placenta. So when you clamp the cord, you disconnect this newborn baby from its primary source of glucose. So if you like, this newborn baby is used to having this continuous supply of glucose from the placenta and you've just cut off their supply chain. So in the first few hours of life, a drop in blood glucose levels is normal physiology after being disconnected from the placenta. So if we talk about healthy infants, this neonatal hypoglycemia is brief, it is transient, and it is often asymptomatic. Okay, so infants are at risk of having severe and or prolonged hypoglycemia. So we said it can be brief, transient and asymptomatic, but infants are at a risk of having severe or prolonged hypoglycemia, which is obviously more worrying due to a combination of a few different mechanisms. So we've talked about the number one, insufficient glucose supply. 
very dependent upon having glucose given to them. They have low glycogen stores and low fat stores at that time. And the mechanisms of glucose production, either from amino acids, okay, or other ways of manufacturing fatty acid pathway, etc., aren't developed. So if you're not getting glucose, if you can't break down glycogen through glycogenolysis because you've got poor glycogen stores, then where are they getting this glucose from? We know that they utilise glucose more because they have excessive insulin production or an increased metabolic demand, okay? Because they've gone from a very warm environment where their metabolic rate is relatively low to a cold environment where their metabolic rate will be a lot higher. And remember, it's not just the mechanisms of glucose production that are underdeveloped in an infant, it's these counter-regulatory mechanisms, okay? Okay, so they're not as well developed either. So to put all of that into perspective, if you've got an insufficient glucose supply, you've been disconnected from the placenta. If you've got low glycogen stores, you can't break down glycogen to form glucose through glycogenolysis. If we have got an increased metabolic demand or that are counter-regulatory mechanisms. So these are the hormones like growth hormone, like cortisol, like your catecholamines that increase your blood glucose level. So when you think counter-regulatory, these are the hormones that oppose glucose, glucagon as well. So neonatal hypoglycemia, you need to have a high index of suspicion in three big groups. Okay, so if you're in an exam question, and you've got an irritable neonate or a neonate that's jittery or having seizures, and you think about what the most likely metabolic abnormality is, statistically, it will be hypoglycemia. There's three things, three groups of infants that increase your suspicion. So they're your infants with interuterine growth restriction or small for gestational age, okay? So small infants, infants with interuterine growth restriction. The second group are your infants of diabetic mothers or your large for gestational age infants. We'll talk about why this is. And the third thing is your late preterm infants. So 34 to late 36 weeks. So preterm, interuterine growth restricted, and small for gestational age infants are at risk for hypoglycemia. And why is this? They are born with decreased glycogen stores. They have a small amount of fat tissue or adipose tissue. And they experience increased metabolic demands because of their relatively large brain size. Remember, if you have got into uterine growth restriction, you will preserve your major organs. So you get this phenomenon when the head is quite big compared to the body, because preferentially you're gonna shunt nutrients to your brain and your core, heart, kidneys, rather than to your limbs. 
So you get this phenomenon into uterine growth restricted infants where the head is quite big because you shunted all of your glucose and all of the goodies of the placenta in utero to the head and to the vital organs. In very low birth weight preterm infants, less than a thousand grams, the enzymes involved in gluconeogenesis, so I want to clarify these terms, okay? Gluconeogenesis is the production of new glucose. Glycogenolysis is breaking down glycogen to glucose. Gluconeogenesis is the formation of new glucose. These enzymes are expressed in very, very low levels in extremely, um, in sorry, very low birth weight infants. So your ability to produce glucose is poor, to produce new glu glucose is poor. And this contributes to their risk of having severe or prolonged hypoglycemia. Infants of diabetic mothers and large for gestational age infants was the second group of three we talked about. We've talked about the first one. So the first group we said was interuterine growth restriction or small for gestational age. We said that these infants, just to recap the first group, are at risk because they've got decreased glycogen stores, decreased adipose tissue, and have increased metabolic demands because of their relatively increased brain size. Second group, infants of diabetic mothers and those that are large for gestational age. They get fetal hyperinsulinism. So I want to be very, very clear here. This group have hypoglycemia because their insulin levels are high. Okay. Insulin levels they're exposed to are high. So if your insulin levels are high, insulin has the effect of increasing your peripheral tissues utilization of glucose so if your insulin goes up what happens insulin goes up your peripheral tissues use the glucose extract it from the blood and therefore the amount of glucose in your blood goes down hypoglycemia so the placenta supplies the fetus with a direct source of glucose through facilitated diffusion Okay, fetal glucose levels are proportional to maternal levels. So when we've got an intact placenta, fetal glucose levels are proportional to maternal glucose levels. So let's think about that now. If you get prolonged elevations in maternal glucose concentrations, what will happen? You will get fetal hyperglycemia. So we're talking in utero now, intact placenta. If the mother is diabetic, even worse if they're poorly controlled diabetic, their maternal glucose concentrations go up. And we said because of facilitated diffusion, fetal glucose concentrations are proportional to maternal glucose concentrations. So if you get fetal hypoglycemia and you get pancreatic overstimulation, okay, that overstimulation is required to increase fetal insulin production. Okay, so these elevated levels of fetal insulin persist after birth. OK, 
Okay, they don't go away straight after. So we're saying in utero that the levels of glucose of the fetus before they are born are proportional through facilitated diffusion to the mother's. So if the mother's blood glucose goes up, the fetus's blood glucose goes up. Okay. Why is that important? Well, the elevated levels of fetal insulin remain after birth. And this is the crucial bit. In the absence of a continuous exogenous glucose source feeding food, breast milk, etc. There is an increased glucose utilisation and lower blood glucose concentrations. So if your insulin goes up and your glucose, there's no reaction to your glucose at all. You don't have a source of glucose. You've got unopposed high fetal insulin levels because of what happened in utero. So when the baby comes out, they've still got that increased um, fetal insulin levels. So infants of diabetic mothers have a decreased ability to mobilise glycogen stores after birth and experience a relative adrenal insufficiency, okay? So their catecholamines, for example, will be lower than matching them to infants of non-diabetic mothers. So if you, you're lacking a key counter-regulatory hormone there, so if you've got adrenal insufficiency, you can't produce hormones such as cortisol and catecholamines that are crucial to oppose these low glucose levels and the effects of insulin, okay? So if their insulin levels are high, they will have hypoglycemia. So what else do we know? So if an infant experiences perinatal stress, so that can be fetal distress, that can be perinatal ischemia, lack of blood supply, maternal eclampsia or preeclampsia, sepsis, hypothermia, any stressor, okay? Or if they've got congenital heart disease, their metabolic requirements go up and that is a risk of hyper, ho, hypoglycemia. So perinatal stress causes, and I want to explain this term in a second, hypoglycemic hyperinsulinism, okay, that can persist for days or weeks, okay? So perinatal stress will cause hypoglycemic hyperinsulinism, okay? Increased metabolic energy requirements, okay? Increased metabolic energy requirements. Other causes of transient, so I want to be very clear here, transient hypoglycemia are drugs. So intrapartum administration of maternal medication, for example, uh, beta adrenergic agents, valproic acid, propranolol and conduction anaesthetics. Um, they're all very important. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to briefly take one of those medications and talk you through the mechanism so that it makes sense. So, for example, a beta blocker. So what do we know about beta blockers? Well, 
beta blockers, for example, they inhibit hepatic glucose production. Hepatic glucose production is in part promoted or stimulated by a sympathetic nervous system, so by your adrenergic receptors. So you have got a beta blocker, more correctly, a beta adrenergic antagonist, to give it its proper name. So these are medications that antagonize beta receptors. If you antagonize beta receptors, you blunt your sympathetic nervous system response and therefore you get a lower amount of hepatic glucose production. So this counter-regulatory phenomenon, okay, um, that we talk about is diminished by giving beta blockers because your adrenergic side of things, the production of catecholamines, etc., are one of the important things that increase your blood glucose levels. So beta adrenergic agents, by working on your adrenergic receptors, will lead to hypoglycemia. The important thing is because the symptoms of hypoglycemia that you get are mainly adrenergic symptoms. You know, when people talk about um, the jitteriness, um, the feeling of hunger, all of these things, drowsiness, those um, shaking, tremors, they are all mediated by an adrenergic phenomenon. So I want you to be aware of, as a take-home point today, in both infants, childs, uh, children, sorry, and adults, I want you to be aware of the phenomenon that beta blockers blunt the normal symptoms of hypoglycemia, all bar one, sweating. So if you have got someone on the ward who is sweating and you can't really put it down to anything, maybe their temperature is okay, maybe you don't really know what's going on, ask one of the healthcare or nursing staff to do a blood glucose measurement. You'll be amazed a number of times, You, it's happened to me a few times, you get called to someone who's sweating. They're absolutely fine otherwise, but they're sweating. You end up doing all, everything you do in ECG in case it's associated with um, a cardiac event, but they may just be complaining of sweating and you may find that the temperature is actually normal and therefore it's probably not sweating due to pyrexia. Everything else is normal. You may send off some blood tests um, and do a blood gas and other things. And you may find that what has actually happened is this patient has got hypoglycemia. So in the context of someone on a beta blocker, always look for sweating. You're not going to see the typical findings that you look for in hypoglycemia. So all of those symptoms that you learn in medical school for hypoglycemia work well in every situation apart from if someone's on a beta blocker because they are adrenergic mediated. So if you interfere with that process, the symptoms you get to reveal the diagnosis of hypoglycemia are not going to be there. So look out for sweating. Patients sweating on the ward suspect hypoglycemia. So that's beta blockers and how they work. So low glucose concentrations that persist beyond the first 48 hours are very concerning. So my ears would perk up and I would begin to think, why has someone got 
Why has an infant, in this case, got hypoglycemia past the first 48 hours of life? We can't blame it on the things that we talked about earlier on. Blunted counter-regulatory hormones, low glycogen stores, low fat stores, poor mechanisms of glucose production. We can't really blame those things anymore because they tend to get better in those first one or two days. So we need to say, well, what could it be? So we're going to talk about the underlying mechanisms that cause pathologic or persistent hypoglycemia are similar to those that we've described above. So there is a degree of crossover. We said, for example, jaundice, jaundice that appears pathologically versus physiologically and how to determine between them. We're doing a similar thing here. What would make you think a physiological cause for hypoglycemia that just requires treatment, giving glucose, etc., establishing feeds versus things that make you think, hang on a minute, is there a syndromic association here? Is there an inborn error of metabolism? So there's a few things. So hyperinsulinism is one of the mechanisms. So if you think physiological mechanisms for um, persistent hypoglycemia, you'd think hyperinsulinism. So it's, this, it's the same mechanism which happens in infants of diabetic mothers. Infants of diabetic mothers have this um, facilitated diffusion process between the fetus and the placenta, which regulates. So if mum's blood glucose goes up, the fetus's blood glucose goes up, fetal insulin production goes up, you get increased activation of beta cells. When the fetus then becomes disconnected from the placenta, the insulin levels still remain high in the fetus. So you get fetal hyperinsulinism. But over time, because you're not connected to the mother anymore, the fetus is not connected to the mother. When you disconnect the placenta, you would expect this type of hypoglycemia to get better over the first few days. So the next thing to think about is there's causes of hyperinsulinism. So that could be congenital hyperinsulinism. And we've got two syndromes that I'm going to talk about. So I've got bethwick wiedemann syndrome and Sotter syndrome. So I don't want you to obsess over the names or which chromosome, but I'm going to give you a brief overview. I'm going to talk to you about why they're important. So bethwick wiedemann syndrome is a growth disorder and it gives you big babies that reach a normal adult height. So the baby will be big, but normally will have a normal adult height. It's on chromosome 11 and you will get hemihyperplasia. So you can find that one side of the body is bigger than the other side. You can get abdominal wall, effect, wall defects like an omphalocele. Hypoglycemia, there you go. There's the link into this podcast. Macroglossia, so a big tongue. Pits around the ear. And Wilms tumour, that is a type of kidney tumour, um, sometimes called a nephroblastoma. It's due to, and this is good revision for those of you who are doing SBA questions, it is due to genetic phenomenon called imprinting. So if you get exam questions on something called what is imprinting, so a, um, a newborn baby has hemihyperplasia, an omphalocele, the um, blood glucose levels are found to be low, they have a big tongue, 
okay, and there are some ear pits present. They suspect a diagnosis of Bethwick-Wiedemann syndrome. The consultant explains to the parents that this is could be due to something called imprinting, which the following is the correct definition of imprinting. So imprinting is very simple. So some genes that are active, or in other words, expressed, this only happens when they're inherited from the mother and some are when they're inherited from the father. So depending on who you inherit the gene from, which is luck, if you inherit it from your mother and it's a gene that only gets expressed when you inherit it from your mother, gene expression happens. If it is a gene that you inherit from your mother, but it only is expressed if you inherit it from your father's side, the gene will not be expressed. So that's imprinting, and that's something that can happen with Bethwick-Wiedemann syndrome. It, Wilms tumors, interestingly, can be associated with something called Wagger syndrome, um, which basically stands for Wilms tumor, aniridia, so it's, you know, that you do not possess an iris, G for genitourinary abnormalities and R for renal, so it can form part of Wagger syndrome. What we think is because of the specific region that's affected in Bethwick-Fiedemann syndrome, it leads to beta cell proliferation. What do the beta cells produce? Correct, insulin. So Bethwick-Fiedemann syndrome gives you a hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia. So the low glucose levels are a result of increased insulin production because of beta cell proliferation. Sotos syndrome is the other syndrome I'm going to briefly mention. So this is an overgrowth disorder. It causes excessive growth during childhood. It gives you a big head or macrocephaly, I suppose more specifically, an increased occipitofrontal circumference. So if you were to measure the infant's head with a tape measure, it was first described by Sotos in 1964. And then 30 years later, we had four key features that should alert you to a diagnosis of Soto syndrome. So overgrowth with advanced bone age, macrocephaly, so a big head or an increased occipitofrontal circumference, characteristic facial appearance and learning difficulties. The appearance of the face in infancy is a round face, a prominence of the forehead, and hypertellurism, which I will show you pictures of hypertellurism because it's easier to see and commit to memory than me try and explain it. Downward slanting palpable fissures, again, the angle of the eyes, which again, I'll put um, pictures in in the accompanying PowerPoint presentation. The defect responsible is called the NSD1. Again, don't commit it to memory, just for those of you that might be interested. The facial features change, so actually the mandible tends to be small, then in childhood tends to become pointed, and in adulthood tends to become prominent and square. So the facial changes evolve with age. And again, this is another case of a hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia. So just to recap, when we're talking about the prolonged or persistent hypoglycemia, we have touched on the first point, hyperinsulinism can be due to syndromes such as Bethwick-Wiedemann syndrome or Sotos syndrome. Insufficient energy supply, okay, 
inborn errors of metabolism. So if you've got deficiencies in glycogen, amino acids or free fatty acids, these things cannot be shunted and converted into new glucose. If you've got an amino acid metabolism defect, problem with free fatty acids. If you've got glycogen storage disorders, that's also something that can happen. Um, another important condition or that I'm going to, I'm trying to make it as clinical as possible to understand the physiology is something called Costello syndrome. So Costello syndrome is a rasopathy like Noonan syndrome, which is another example of a rasopathy, uh, sometimes called fascio-cutaneo-skeletal disorder. So they get abnormal facial features. The cutaneous result results in, which is quite interesting, loose skin on the hands and feet and skeletal wise, which is the S, they get abnormally flexible joints. Costello syndrome is important for two reasons in the context of hypoglycemia. They get growth hormone deficiency and they get adrenal insufficiency. So why is that important? Well, clearly, what do we know about the physiology of glucose and how can we apply this to Costello syndrome? So if you've got growth hormone deficiency, what does growth hormone do with regards to glucose? Growth hormone stimulates hepatic glycogenolysis. Very posh word for saying it stimulates the liver to break down its stored glycogen into glucose. So if you've got growth hormone deficiency, that doesn't happen. So your blood glucose will go down. Second thing is, growth hormone is a counter-regulatory hormone. It antagonizes the effect of insulin on peripheral cells. So you don't get the same effect as insulin does. So insulin stimulates. So what does insulin stimulate? If you think about, yes. So insulin will cause what to happen? Your blood glucose to go down. Good. So if growth hormone stimulates, as we said, hepatic glycogenolysis, and it antagonizes the effect of insulin. If you've got growth hormone deficiency, if you've got growth hormone deficiency, insulin is unopposed. One of the key hormones is deficient. So insulin remains unopposed. Unopposed insulin causes your blood glucose levels to go down. Okay. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia, 21 hydroxylase deficiency, salt wasting crisis in neonates giveaway sba question that they love to ask will cause in a decent amount of cases hypoglycemia okay so you can get hypoglycemia because you're producing um sex hormones you're not producing mineralocorticoids and you're not producing glucocorticoids so you get catecholamine and cortisol deficiency okay and similarly, if you've got problem with your pituitary gland, you won't produce ACTH. ACTH can't act on the adrenal glands, for example. You can't produce catecholamines, cortisol, etc. So it's really important to think about those feedback loops and how they will affect things. So causes of persistent neonatal hypoglycemia to summarise. Congenital hyperinsulinism. Congenital syndromes such as Bethwick-Wiedemann syndrome and Sotos syndrome both result in growth disorder. Costello syndrome that we've talked about, 
that was really important that causes growth hormone deficiency, which is really important, and adrenal insufficiency. Both of those things will lead to a low um, blood glucose level. Endocrine disorders, underactive pituitary gland, no ACTH production, okay? Congenital adrenal hyperplasia, no cortisol production and catecholamines. Inborn errors of metabolism. So to name a few, you've got glycogen storage disorders, you've got galactosemia, and you've got fatty acid oxidation defects. Any problems with any of those things and your blood glucose levels will not be great. Okay. So, to summarise, to summarise, the fetus depends on maternal metabolism and a good placental circulation to provide the following. Glucose, ketones, free fatty acids and amino acids to meet its energy requirements. The placenta supplies the fetal circulation with a direct source of glucose. When we clamp the umbilical cord at birth, this disrupts this continuous source of glucose. So there's a rapid decline in blood glucose levels in the first three hours of life. Low blood glucose concentrations cause a surge of insulin and other hormones, okay? Including catecholamines, glucose and corticosteroids that stimulate glucose production via glucose neogenesis and glycogenolysis, okay? This provides the infant with a source of glucose and other energy substrates. The result is we get a gradual rise of blood glucose levels over the next several hours to several days. Low glu glucose levels are postulated to stimulate appetite as well. Any mechanism that disrupts this sequence of physiological events puts the infant at risk of not having a transient asymptomatic hypoglycemia, but a severe or prolonged one. The risk for hypoglycemia is greatest in the first few hours after birth. Persistent hypoglycemia results from, broadly speaking, a number of a few mechanisms. Excessive insulin secretion that we've talked about happens in infants of diabetic mothers, okay? Maternal hyperglycemia with an intact placenta in utero causes fetal hyperglycemia that leads to fetal insulin release, fetal beta cell proliferation. And when the fetus is born and exits the in utero environment, they, the insulin levels will still be high resulting in um, hypoglycemia. If you've got deficiency of cortisol or growth hormone, that can cause persistent hypoglycemia. We talked about Costello syndrome, where you've got growth hormone deficiency and adrenal insufficiency, and that leads to hypoglycemia. Inborn areas of metabolism, either because you can't, if you've got a glycogen storage defect, you can't produce glucose properly from glycogen, 
or if you've got fatty acid oxidation defects galactosemia you can't synthesize glucose properly either from the initial substrates or from other things like fatty acids or amino acids presentation let's go through a few of the things that you might want to look for symptoms of neonatal hypoglycemia sweating feeding difficulties poor suck weak cry tremors low temperature hypothermia irritability low tone seizures coma apnea grunting okay so that's what we're looking at okay so it's very very important we've talked about the at-risk groups so that's important so if an infant has got persistent hypoglycemia if we think they've got an underlying disorder we can measure bicarbonate lactic acid beta hydroxybutyrate that is involved in the um, ketone body and fatty acid cycle insulin free fatty acids during hypoglycemia okay so during a hypoglycemic episode this can help differentiate it from hyperinsulinism and disorders of fatty acid oxidation. If your insulin levels are high during these episodes of hypoglycemia, this would lead it to think it was hyperinsulinism rather than anything else. And if the hydroxybutyrate is abnormal, etc., and the free fatty acids are abnormal, we could be looking at a fatty acid oxidation defect. So if we've got asymptomatic infants at risk of neonatal hypoglycemia, the American Academy of Pediatrics talks about initiating feeds within the first hour of life and having initial glucose screening 30 minutes afterwards. Most hospitals will talk about giving dextrose gel. This is normally 200 milligram per kilogram, which is massaged into the buccal mucosa it's relatively inexpensive it's well tolerated and it actually reduces admissions to neonatal intensive care for intravenous dextrose obviously in a lot of if you establish feeds you give glucose and it still doesn't work then intravenous glucose is what you have to do um, which is you know important you can look at corticosteroids and glucagon second line if dextrose doesn't work. And then you would then begin to question um, what do we think is going on. Things like um, diaxazide is something that inhibits insulin. So if you've got congenital hyperinsulinism, that is sometimes given. But basically, wherever you work, there will be a good guideline on hypoglycemia. And therefore, practices change between hospitals. But it's often worth um, familiarising yourself with that. The prognosis we've talked about. So severe hypoglycemia is associated with long-term developmental um, adverse outcomes. So to summarise today, we've talked about what hypoglycemia is, some of the physiology involved in hypoglycemia, and we've briefly talked about the treatment. Thank you very much.